Peace to you. Welcome back to The Naked Truth, and thank you for joining me. We are in the Old Testament since it's Wednesday, and we made it to the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel, up to chapter 2, and we'll begin with verse 1. If you want to read along with me, here we go. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. So Hannah is the one who has a is sharing a husband with another man and uh, with another woman i'm sorry and um, the other woman had plenty of kids whereas hannah was barren but then hannah was granted in the previous chapter that we read she prayed for a child and she was given one or she was, got pregnant had her baby and as part of her prayer she made a vow it's a promise a religious promise basically that if she were granted a pregnancy and a child, she would dedicate that child to the Lord as a sacrifice, not to kill it, but to offer it to the religion, basically, so that that child would belong to the religious authorities once it, and once she was blessed with it. She got it, and so once her child got old enough to stop breastfeeding, she uh, left the child with the religious leaders at the temple. Um, it sounds like a nice story and, you know, you just take it at face value, but you know, from modern times, what happens in a lot of religions from, and from different religions, not just the ones that claim to be Christian, children get abused, they get exploited. And it's, um, we've seen it in all sorts of different religions in modern times that date back generations. So, um, I mean, like I said, it sounds nice and and um, holy to do something like that, but it's very dangerous for the children, um, especially in modern times. And I imagine it's probably just as dangerous back then, especially since child marriage and uh, exploitation is nothing new. But it's how I read, so let's just keep reading. So she's giving praise, basically, Hannah, that is, at the fact that she's received the prayers she was seeking. I'm sorry, the things she was seeking in prayer. Verse 2, no one is holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. So just to be sure, let's see what Lord and God are being translated from at this point in the story. Lord is being translated from the name Jehovah, and God is being translated from the word Elohim. So the same sort of mixed message as far as the translation those are the words and name that were originally in the language this was spoken in but the words in english are lord with all caps and god with a capital g so she's basically still just giving praise to god saying there's no one nothing no nothing there's nothing god is stands alone verse three talk no more so very proudly let no arrogance come from your mouth for the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. So she's describing the Lord as being one who can, who knows all and weighs the actions of everyone, presumably to pay them back, you know, good and evil. Verse 4, the bows of the mighty men are broken, and those who stumbled are girded with strength. So she's saying there that God has power to overthrow the mighty 
and their weapons of war, bows and arrows and this incense, um, and help those who stumble and um, strengthen um, the one who stumbles and falls. So basically, God has power to turn the tables. Verse 5, those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has borne seven, and she who has many children has become feeble. So she seems to be saying there that not only is God able to turn the tables on the rich and the poor, uh, the powerful and the weak, but she's also saying the same thing has happened is possible with the barren and the fruitful. Whereas, like I was saying, her rival, as it describes her, um, had plenty of children and and um, Hannah had none. She seems to be saying there that um, now the tables have been turned. She's had born a child and the one who had lots of kids is sitting there feeble. Um, so I don't know if that means she's also had other female children because remember it's a patriarchal document. So only the male births are noteworthy. So it's possible that after she had Samuel, she had other kids too, probably other girls, but um, we know, at least from the narrative, at least she had that Samuel. Verse 6, the Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. So um, she's giving Jehovah, that's who they're identifying as Lord in the narrative at this point, and she's saying it has power to... Um, to um, give life and take it, basically. Verse 7, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich, brings low. Let me say that again. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He low and lifts up. So I changed, I didn't change it, but I left out the word brings because that would imply that we are low at that point if you say that out loud so um that's the only reason i went over that again and again trying to figure out how best to say it to you the lord makes poor and makes rich low and lifts up so it still gets the message across without um joining the crowd that's low um and if you've read with me before and you i think you understand what the difference is um, but she's again is just saying the same thing that the Lord has power to exalt or uh, diminish. Verse 6, he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes to make them inherit the throne of glory. So again, she's saying the same thing there, that the Lord has power to turn the tables on those who are um, on all. Yet it doesn't seem like that uh, the Lord, at least in a sense, and um, the Lord that she's describing is as active in times, in present times, as the world was back then. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't finish reading that verse. I thought that was it at the break. So let me just reread this. Verse 8, he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he has set the world upon them. So I don't think she means literal pillars there, that because um, that would imply that um, the earth is being held up by something other than gravity. But if she does mean what's holding the earth in place, 
um, however it's, it is, it would mean gravity. But um, it's, uh, the whole flat earth theory is something that people believed in ancient times, but also people believe in modern times, um, even though space travel would um, disprove that. So um, believe what you want. Um, I don't think she's, I don't know what she's referring to, but I think what she's saying, the systems that hold the earth up, however they're to be understood, whether it's how, how some people, and even the Bible itself doesn't always talk about the earth being flat. It talks about the earth being flat in Revelation, where it says things like the four corners of the earth. The earth doesn't have corners, um, literally. Um, and then in other places in the Bible, it describes it as the circle of the earth. So that more sounds like a, something more similar to what the earth is, as we now believe it to be, be uh, a sphere or, you know, round. However, it's to be understood, I think what she's saying there, that the systems, again, of the earth are what the Lord upholds. And, um, but as far as the slippery turning the tables, one would wonder where is the Lord's hand in that in modern times so many people are misguided or at least fully persuaded by lies and by um, obvious lies and corruption. Even lies and corruption that keep them oppressed, they're still fully persuaded to follow it. So um, one would wonder, what is the Lord waiting on to overturn that? Verse 9, he will guard the feet, the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength no man shall prevail. So she's saying there that uh, it's not um, physical strength that will help keep one alive or preserve one from troubles at the end of the day. It's only the Lord's hand and um, Lord's will that guards our ways um, in which ways we go and wherever they are. whether And, um, and the Lord's power. Uh, the Lord's strength that has power to silence the wicked and set them in darkness. Verse 10, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his exalted. I'm sorry, of his, of his anointed. So king and anointed there are lowercase, so it doesn't seem to be an allusion to Jesus. Um, so I think what she's saying there is um, talking about the regular human kings that end up being set over the people, the judges, at one point. And then eventually, excuse me, eventually the um, kings like King David, King Solomon, and so forth that will come to rule over the people. Um, I think that's what she's saying, that the Lord has power to do both, to strengthen both, or to um, um, eliminate both. Verse 11, Then Elkanah went to his house at Ramah, but the child ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. So Elkanah is her husband, the one with two wives. Um, he's um, gone back, because remember it's the men who are required to show up at um, the appointed times of the year and make those offerings um and eli is the priest and samuel is their son who she's left there now 
in the custody, basically, of Eli as now his new proselyte. Verse 12, now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. So the narrator is now letting us know that um, the descendants of Eli's sons are corrupt, and the corruption is going to be explained now. Verse 13, and the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. So the sacrifices at this time in the narrative were animal sacrifices, among other things. Um, but with the animal sacrifices, the um, it wasn't burning a fire up to a crisp. Like we've said again and again, it's for the enrichment of the priests. And so at this point, uh, what it seems the offense of Eli's sons, because it's a lineage that works in the priesthood at this point in the narrative, probably in modern times too, in different sects of the religion, um, they have the duty of handling the offerings. So it sounds like at this point what the priests would do, his sons, is they dig into the bowl, into the cauldron, the pot. Well, it's going to go into it further. Verse 14, then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself all that the flesh was brought up. So they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. So they used that three-pronged flesh hook, which you could imagine like a butcher's hook um, or maybe even a fisherman's hook like from that movie I Know What You Did Last Summer, something like that, that you can really hook and grab a whole heap of meat with. That's what they're using in the sacrificial pot that people offer meat in and would just dig into that and whatever that giant three-pronged hook would bring up, they'd basically confiscate for themselves, which I'm not sure why that would be an offense since the all of the meat and stuff is for them anyway. Um... I don't, I'm not sure what the offense is about all of that, but apparently it's considered an offense um, to the people offering the offering, making the offering. Um, I'm not sure why, but for whatever reason, that seems to be what they're doing uh, that's offending the people. Verse 15, also, before they burnt the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who sacrificed, give meat for roasting to the priest." he will not take boiled meat from you, but raw. So um, that apparently also is an offense for the uh, servant of the priest to go through and demand uh, the raw meat from people rather than um, meat that's already been roasted, even though, again, the roasting of the meat, the burning of the fat, all of that is for the priest to do anyway. So I'm not really sure why that would be considered an offense. Uh, by the people making the offering. It's not as if the people making the offering are going to get to handle the fat, the meat, the roasted, the raw, or any of that anyway. But that seems to be what the narrator is letting us know is the offense of um, Eli's sons, the priests. Verse 16, and if the man said to him, they should really burn the fat first, then you may take as much as your heart desires. He would then answer him, no, but you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. So that seems to be for sure an offense that they're not really free will offerings. The people are required, quote unquote, unquote according to the law set out by the religion. 
to make those offerings in the first place. And then the offerings are for the priest's enrichment, according to the books we've read so far. So I'm really not sure why that's an offense. But the part about taking it by force, that's probably the part that's the offense, the coercion and forcefully taking the offering from the people. Again, even though a free will offering is a whole different offering that people are allowed to give, other offerings are required. So I'm not really sure why that's such an offense either, actually, uh, even if they choose to take it by force. But uh, apparently it was not something that people like, which is understandable. But if it's what your religion requires of you, are you really allowed to gripe about it any more than um, people are complaining about a religion that requires women to wear head coverings or separate the men from the women while in service or any of the other dogmatic things religion requires? Are you really allowed to complain about it if it's the religion you're worshiping telling you that that's what you're supposed to do? Um, it seems to me what you would do is examine your religion, examine your beliefs. And if you find them to be wicked, or at the very least, highly unlikely to be godly, get away from it as quickly as you can. Convert, change, or even be an atheist would make more sense than to continue worshiping something that oppresses you. Or at the end of the day, you know in your heart it's not godly. But people do what people do and believe what, believe what you want to believe. Verse 17, therefore the sin of the young man was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. So the narrator here, and remember none of this is red letters, it's not like Jesus is saying any of this, but the narrator, presumably Samuel, is letting us know that that's the offense of Eli's sons and the um, offense of them being so aggressive with the offerings is what caused people to turn away from belief and fall away from the religion. And in that sense, it was an offense um, in, in the Lord's eyes. But again, if, if it's the Lord that's offended by any of this stuff, why doesn't the Lord act on any of it? We've seen the same Lord, and I'm saying Lord because that's how it reads, not because I believe that's God Almighty, but just because it's how it reads. But we've seen in previous examples of the same Lord uh, lashing out at people, opening up the ground and swallowing people up when they offend, or striking people down with firebolts from heaven when they offend, uh, striking people with leprosy if they offend, over things that seem like slights. Um, and yet, if all of this is so offensive to the Lord, why doesn't the Lord act on it? Why doesn't the Lord strike it down so that it would end? Maybe that time will come at the point in his narrative, but at this point, that's not what's happening. So, verse 18, but Samuel ministered before the Lord, even as a child, wearing a linen ephod. So, um, Samuel is Hannah's son, and he's doing his service in the religion at this point. And we've read before, an ephod is an ornamental vest. So, excuse me, it seems um, he's doing his ministering, and he's wearing the uniform, basically. That ornamental vest, only his isn't of gold like some of the other ones we read about previously. His is linen, so it's a humble ornamental vest. Verse 19, moreover, his mother used to make him a little robe and bring it to him year by year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly, yearly sacrifice. So clearly he's old enough now, probably a toddler, something like three, two, three, 
four years old to be serving um, in these duties um, in the religion and his mother would bring him um, clothes, robes to wear um, when they'd go up um, to make that yearly sacrifice. Verse 20, And Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, The Lord give you descendants from this woman for the loan that was given to the Lord. Then they would go to their own home. So that sort of implies that Hannah did have more children, probably again more girls, since it since what she said earlier about um, the baron becoming a mother of many, or basically paraphrasing that. Um, so most likely she did have other children. Um, but also what they're saying about lent to the loan to the Lord, that's what the way she described uh, her giving Samuel to the religion of her service as a loan to the Lord all his days. Verse 21, And the Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. So there's the answer. She did have more kids. And it seems that that must be what she was alluding, what she was saying when she was giving praise earlier about the barren becoming a mother of many. She did because I have more kids. Verse 22, now Eli was very old and he heard everything his sons did to all Israel and how they lay with the women with who assembled at the door of the tabernacle meeting. So Eli's sons were wilding out. They were getting busy with the women who were there at the door of the tabernacle. Having sex with them is what they mean by laying with them. So they're doing things in their religion that quiet is kept. It's done in lots of religions where the priests would take liberties with the women and unfortunately even the children who take part in the religion who sometimes the parents unknowingly um, allow their children to be molested in plain, plain English by or sometimes sick as it is they know their children are going to be abused by the religion and religious leaders and they allow it um, in dedication to the religion it's the same sort of brainwashing you see with MAGA, people who join political cults, who believe, even though the facts tell them otherwise, they fully believe and are fully persuaded that their mission is a righteous one. Even though all the facts, the objective facts, say otherwise. When I say objective facts, I mean objective facts in the case of MAGA, like being told um, Obamacare will be replaced with something cheaper and better. It wasn't. Being told that a border wall would be built and paid for by Mexico. It wasn't built or paid for by Mexico. Otherwise, if it was, and that's a, that points to another proof that both Democrats and Republicans at the top, anyway, are on board with the nonsense, with the lie, because why in the world would they keep allowing the conversation to be about immigrants at the border, immigrants at the border, without at least saying, well, then why didn't previous president build that border like he said he did clearly he must not have if immigration is out of control now and they don't even bring that up and much less the fact that he said mexico is going to pay for it they don't bring up any of that any more than they bring up the fact that two governors human trafficked uh, trafficked humans from the border to other states they don't bring that up at all their opposition supposedly in the different debates don't bring it up they don't push the Justice Department to uh, pursue charges for any of that. 
They don't do it at all. Neither does the Democratic president pursue any of that, bring up any of that. If it were the other way around, it would be constantly brought up. It wouldn't be put to rest until people were in cuffs and in custody. And yet, you see, that's not what happens at all. It's it's sad. It's sick. Um, but it is the current state of America. It's And that makes me believe, and then we'll move on. That's exactly why America must be that same Babylon described in Revelation. We know it's not ancient Babylon. That culture, that civilization has come and gone. So it has to be a prophecy, if you're to believe it, of a future nation that's a superpower. And the only superpower that could still is America. And we know how it's described in Revelation from when we read it there, and when we went over that book. So it seems to me America is fulfilling that role unlike any other. But back to Samuel, verse 22. Now Eli was very old. Oh, So it's saying that Eli knows the things that his sons were doing, um, but because he's old and because they're his sons, he probably just turned a blind eye and looked the other way. Verse 23, so he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. So he might not, he might choose to look the other way, but the people are letting him know his sons are up to no good. And he's telling his sons that he hears it from the congregation about the things that they do and questioning them why they do them. Verse 24, No, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. So he's putting the fact that the people are falling into sin on his sons and saying that it's their actions that are making the people transgress. Basic, presumably the law. And again, the law is what the religious leaders make it. Verse 25, if one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father, because the Lord desired to kill them. So now it's saying, according to the narrator, the Lord is desiring to kill them. But if that's the case, like I said previously, why doesn't the Lord do it and nip it in the bud instead of letting it go so long that the people end up affected by it and the people who are following them, following them end up falling into sin and transgression. Um, why doesn't the Lord act on all of that stuff more instantaneously? Like how the Moses, how Moses got an instant response. How the racism in the previous readings from Moses' brother and sister got an instant response. How other people got instant karma, as we call it, for the things they said and did in previous books, why would the Lord let it go on and on and on and let other people fall into that trap if it's the Lord's desire to kill them? Um, it doesn't make sense to me, but it is how I read, so that's why we're reading it. Um, and one other thing about that, where he says if a man sins against God or against another person, that to me is sort of like what we talk about in the Gospels, where... Um, you can, um, the different, the, the commandments to love the Lord and to love your neighbor as yourself. And I'm paraphrasing there, but if you've read one before, you know what I'm talking about. The one law, the one commandment, the first and great commandment, as Jesus calls it, is to love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. If you're doing that, that's unseen. People can't tell if you're doing that or not. People can only assume because you wear a certain uniform, whether it's religious 
or governmental or um, a police uniform, for instance, people can assume that, oh, you must be um, on the right path or righteous because you're wearing that uniform, even if you're not. And we've seen many cases where people are not. But only God knows if you're keeping that commandment. The other commandment to love your neighbor is yourself. That one people can tell. People can tell by your generosity or by your um, selfishness, by your corruption, if you're keeping that law. So it seems to me that's what is sort of being discussed here in verse 25 about sinning against the person and sinning against God. Sinning against God, God knows that and can see it. Sinning against people, God knows that too. But people can also see that also. That's the one people can see. Um, but you're, we're ordered, we're commanded to do both. Verse um, 26, but before we move on, so what Eli is telling his sons there is that it's one thing to sin against people, but to sin against God, who's going to help you? Verse 26, and the child Samuel grew in stature and in favor both with Lord, with the Lord and men. So that's similar to the way they describe Jesus growing up from his interaction uh, in the temple with the religious leaders and then from then on in the Gospels to when he became an adult. And similarly, they're saying Samuel started out small as a little kid, but as time passed, he grew up and um, grew favor with people and with the Lord. Let's see, verse uh, 27. Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? So it's saying a man of God, presumably um, some sort of other religious leader, whether it be a prophet or someone who's just spiritually led, seems to be going to Eli, the priest, with a message from the Lord um, and saying, um, hearkening back, calling to his memory, the fact that his forefathers were the ones who were called to the priesthood, um, presumably Moses and Aaron, since the priesthood is our descendants of Aaron. And saying that, um, bringing to his mind, calling to his memory, the fact that his forefathers were the ones who were in Egypt in slavery, in bondage, in slavery in Africa, his forefathers were. And at that point, they were called to the religion. Verse 28, did I not choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the offerings of the children of Israel made by fire? So uh, the different um, things that were laid out in the previous books that we've read in the Bible or what are being, being called to Eli's memory, letting him know that it's his forefathers and his family line of, um, of all the different uh, tribes of the congregation that were chosen for the priesthood duties and to receive the gifts and the enrichment of the priesthood. All those different offerings that I talked about earlier, whether they're animal, flower, booze, in the case of wine, or whatever other enrichments people may offer, those were already ordained to be given to the priests so that they can be enriched by them. 
So there's really no need for them to get greedy and forcefully take the offerings from the people because they're already going to go to them anyway. Um, the ones by fire anyway. Verse 20. And those are the only ones that are from by fire. They don't have to burn necessarily all the different offerings either. Verse 29. Why do you kick at my sacrifice and make my offering which I have commanded in my dwelling place and honor your sons more than me to make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel my people? So the corruption is what's being called out by the man of God to Eli, the priest of the religion. Uh, the fact that they're helping themselves to all those offerings that the people are making, even though they've already got plenty of other things, if they really wanted to have a certain cut of meat, people have already given them all sorts of other livestock and things that are alive, that they could take the offering from and eat that. But instead, they choose to corruptly take what it is the people are offering of their own uh, offerings, take that and um, in that way pollute the offering that the people are making. Verse 30, so they're getting called out. Eli is getting called out for um, um, seeing to, um, for allowing his sons to get away with things like that um, when they're supposed to be dedicated to the religion. Verse 30, therefore the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed, they're your house and the house of your father will walk before me forever. But now the Lord says, Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. So now we're seeing a direct and clear contradiction of what was said previously, which again makes me believe that it's not from God Almighty at all. Because wouldn't God Almighty know that they were going to um, not be faithful to the different commandments given? So why in the world would the Lord, who sees the end from the beginning, as I've said before, Say those things in the first place. If you know at some point they're not going to be faithful to what it is you've lined out, or laid out, then why say that in the first place that they're going to walk before you forever? Why wouldn't you just say they're going to walk before me uh, perpetually or walk before me as long as they're faithful? And that is said, and I'm paraphrasing that, in other parts of the books we've read previously. So why in the world would a God Almighty say that knowing that they aren't going to be faithful forever? And so that at some point you're gonna, the words are gonna be taken back. The promised agreement is gonna be taken back. It doesn't make sense to me that God Almighty would do that, but it is how it reads. So again, we're just reading it. So um, now it's being made clear that even though the Lord told them one thing at one point in the gospel, in the gospels, in the scriptures, now the Lord's saying, but now I'm gonna change that. So that whole thing about uh, God's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and the Lord's hand is unchanging and all that. It's a lie. It's clearly a lie. We see right here in plain English, it's translated to English, that the Lord said one thing at one time, and now the Lord's changed the Lord's mind and is saying something else based on the actions of people. So, again, that doesn't sound like God Almighty to me, but it is how it reads. So, keep reading verse 31 behold the days are coming that i will cut off your arm and the arm of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house so now not only are they 
the priesthood duties being taken from them, it seems to read that way. Um, their household, their um, lineage is even going to be cut off. Um, so that so that it seems to be saying all the men of the house of um, his house, his lineage, his his um, descendants are going to die young. They're not going to live to be old men. Sort of like a curse. Verse 32. And you will see an enemy in my dwelling place, despite all the good which God does for Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. So uh, there it is that word forever again. It was forever before when they were promised to that those duties forever. And that was taken back. So now why would we believe that this um, uh, curse that's being laid out to them be forever either? How do we know that's not going to be changed again at some other point um, based on what people do also? Well, it's uh, what the prophet or man of God, as he's described, has delivered to Eli as a message, presumably from the Lord. And that they're, again, not going to, their roles being cut off, basically. They're not going to have those duties anymore. And they're not even going to, they're not even going to live to be old men anymore. They're going to die in their youth. Verse 33, but any of your men whom I do not cut off from my altar shall consume your eyes and grieve your heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die in the flower of their age. So again, it sounds a lot like a curse that all the men are going to be cut off from his among his descendants, and the ones that do live are going to end up just living to be uh, a burden to him and uh, a grief to him and uh, sorrow to his eyes to see the things that they're doing and uh, to experience the ways, their ways, and how they're going to be, and then that they're going to be die young, the flower of their age, that's what that's saying. Verse 34, now this shall be a sign to you that will come upon your two sons, on Hophni and Phinehas, in one day they shall die, both of them. So the man of God it's not only pronounced the curse to Eli and his uh, descendants, his house, in other words, but also a death sentence on his two sons, the ones who have been found guilty, apparently, of the different things they're doing with the sacrifices that the people are making, that they're going to both die in one day. Verse 20, 35, then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before my anointed forever. So, it could be talking about Samuel, but it could be talking about some other priest uh, that's to come, a prophecy of someone else who's going to rise up and take the place of Eli and his household and his two sons who have now been stripped of their duties as um, priests and um their life cut off. Um, verse 36, And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread and say, Please put me in one of the priestly positions that I may eat a piece of bread. So um, the man of God is letting Eli know he's being demoted, him and his household, from the enrichment they were receiving from the priesthood that they're not going to get that anymore and they're going to end up falling into poverty and begging for uh, meat and food to eat and money to make it by 
whereas now at this point in the narrative they're living large getting the enrichment of all the different offerings to the point that they become fat and corrupt to just take what they wanted from the people that all of that's going to be cut off and the tables are going to be turned just like hannah was saying previously and maybe that's part of what her prophecy was or her um, praise statement was a prophecy of what's going to happen with uh, eli and his sons and his household and that her son samuel is going to rise up in his in it in their place um but i guess we'll see how that turns out god willing we get to see as we keep reading these books of the old testament but that's the last chapter in this book of the old testament so that's where we'll end that's the last verse in this chapter so that's where we'll end this reading as always i appreciate you joining for the naked truth and i hope it's a blessing for you and that you'll join me again i love you and i'll see you next time god bless you and peace be with you